0: Welcome to season two of The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career.
1: Give your best effort. Your job is to give your best effort to anything you do. Leave the job of judging the outcome of your efforts to someone else. Forget perfection. You'll never reach it. It doesn't exist. Aim to be better than you were before.
0: That was today's guest, Natalie Kogan. Natalie is the author of the book, Happier Now, how to stop striving for perfection and embrace everyday moments, even the difficult ones. She's also the CEO and founder of Happier Now and Happier at Work and a frequent keynote speaker. She's had a varied career as a consultant with McKinsey, an entrepreneur, and a venture capitalist. She's also a mom to a teenage girl. In our conversation, she shared her path from immigrating to the U.S. as a teenager to CEO and how she leverages her lessons in cultivating happiness and acceptance in her own family. Hey, Natalie. So great to reconnect. How are you?
1: I'm awesome. I'm so grateful uh, that we get to do this together today.
0: Well, you know, I've been um, interviewing, as you know, women over the last several months, and I've been super excited to reconnect with you again for this, this episode and this conversation. Do you mind by kicking off sharing a little bit about what your current day and experience is like? What are you doing right now, both personally and professionally?
1: Today I am so grateful to be in my kitchen office. I also have an office office in the house, but it doesn't get as much light. So personally, um, this has been a week of no travel, and so you're hearing extra energy in my voice because um, I'm used to traveling. So that's what I—that's what my day has been like until now.
0: So, so for people who may not know you yet, right? You have your—you're you're happily married with a teenage daughter. You have your own company focused on emotional health. You are an active keynote speaker an author, um, and your company has other components to it that you're continuing to build. It's to anyone who's listening, myself included, it sounds like a lot and it sounds so impressive. And I think, you know, could you kind of go back in time to help share how you got here? You know, what was your career path to this moment in time?
1: Totally. Um, and um, that was, I love the way you said it in, in, in your voice. That all sounded really fantastic, but I just want to be really clear. All of that, you know, we all know stuff is pretty messy, right? Um, everything from, you know, being married for 21 years to having a 15 year old to building your own company. So everything is awesome and everything is crazy and everything in between. Um, but the way that I got here, I always say, um, if you told me, I don't know. Ten years ago, that that I would find my life purpose at forty, and that life purpose would be to teach um, millions of people and leaders and teams and companies these science-based skills so they can improve their emotional health and happiness and truly thrive. I would laugh you out of the room. I would do that for two reasons. First, I never for most of my life was able, forget happiness, I never was able to feel like content for even like a fleeting moment. It seemed so impossible to me. I was a huge skeptic. And the second was that you know where I come from, it, it, what I am doing now is completely foreign. So I grew up in Russia in the former Soviet Union, and we, my family and I, became refugees. We escaped when I was thirteen years old um, with the goal of coming to the United States. And we're very lucky, very grateful. We spent a couple months in refugee in Europe uh, that Americans had set up. Then we got permission to come to the U.S. I was thirteen. Uh, we landed in the projects outside of Detroit, you know, on welfare and food stamps and. Very excited to have this opportunity to build a life here, but also just completely overwhelmed. And the reason I say that now, you know, just to share like how foreign the idea that this is what I would do would be. There's a great joke. They say Russians are good at three things. Suffering, um, making others suffer and complaining about suffering. And the thing is, it's only funny, like if you haven't met my family, especially the women in my family. Um, my grandma, who's now passed away, uh, definitely holds the first spot. My mom is firmly in second place, but I am very proudly in third place, like suffering, you know, we're Russian Jews. Um, like I wake up every morning. You know, we all have different natural happiness. At that point, mine is really low. Like I wake up every morning and it's like, oh my God, nothing is going to work. Oh my God, everyone's dying. Like, oh my. And so I have to work at it. And so, you know, I didn't come. From a country or a family that talked about happiness or emotional health. You know, your job in life was first of all to survive. Like I grew up as a fighter. You know, Jews were persecuted in Russia. Then I became an immigrant. To be an immigrant is to be a fighter. So it was always like me against the world, fighting. I had to grit it out. And my job was to, you know, be successful, have a family, take good care of my family. Like no one ever talked about this. So I'm in a very unexpected place, but I really did get there from here. Um, and I think it's so, this is why I, sh- I, I go all the way back to 13 because I really, you know, I mentor a lot of younger, um, women and professionals and, it's never a straight line or even a remotely straight direction. you know so after we came to the US, I had this very firm idea that I was going to reach my American dream and become really happy if I was very successful. Like I'll be happy when, which is a mindset many of us have, um, became like my life's mantra. And I did work very, very hard and I did become very successful. I you know ended up I did learn English, obviously, as you can hear. You know, I went to work at McKinsey after um, college, which is a really prestigious consulting firm, which was really funny, by the way, uh, because when we told I, I told my grandparents, my grandparents, my mom's parents came with us. And I excitedly told them that I got a job at this prestigious firm. They looked at me and they said, oh, my God, did you not get into graduate school? (laughs) because in Russia, you know, especially as a Jews, as a Jew, you had to like, that was essential. So so I went to McKinsey, and um, that became my MBA. And then I really wanted to get my hands dirty in startup world. And I worked with a couple startups uh, during the bust. Um, 2000, um, stressful, but you learn a lot. At 26, I became a managing director at a venture capital firm in New York. And I know we, you and I have talked about this. You know, there are tw- they're 6% women in venture capital today. It's less than plumbing. Um, I checked just for one of my talks. It's crazy. Um, so there I was, you know, newly minted 26 year old. I had no idea what I was doing. I just want to own that.
0: But for all people, it's very competitive to get into, period, right? So,
1: yes, yes. Um, and uh, I got into it, as I call it, I fell into it backwards. And actually, I think it's worth a pause because it's a short story. But I just, it's illustrative, you know, one of the things that um, a, a friend of mine from McKinsey recently wrote a book, The CEO Next Door, I highly recommend checking it out. And what she and her company have done, is they've, they've interviewed hundreds of CEOs to really understand like, what, what are the leadership qualities? So anyway, she was interviewing me for it. And she said, what is one quality that like, that you feel, maybe is on, people don't expect, but that you feel has led to your success? And I said, I'm really funny. And she was really surprised. And I said, no, no, I'm being very tactical about it. And I'm bringing this up because I got my job in venture capital, because I tapped into being funny. And I find, um, and I know I'm being very not humble right now. And my grandparents are being very upset at me right now, both dead and alive. You don't say nice things about yourself where I come from ever. Um, But I am funny. I'm really sarcastic and funny. And I find that um, it's amazing social lubricant that in my experience, I think women are really funny, but I think often women feel like it's not appropriate in a professional setting. Um, Whereas men use it. And so I got into venture capital because I was working with this entrepreneur. We were trying to start this ebook company. And this is back when there were like two ebooks in the world. So let's just call ourselves visionaries. Okay. I think we were just naive, but, and we were (laughs) pitching it to this venture capital firm, Hudson Ventures in New York. So like, it's me and, you know, four partners from the firm looking very, very serious. They're all in their 60s, like super serious, intimidating dudes and the CEO of this little startup. Um, but there he was, and there we were. And I, I was running business development. I'm using quotation marks here. Like I was trying to get us a client, let's just call it that. And I put up a slide and I said, you know, and our customers and our partners are 150% behind us. And all of a sudden, one of the partners reaches over, literally shuts my laptop in front of me. Um, Can we say passive aggressive? Um, Looks at me and look totally serious and says, young lady, I really don't understand how anyone can be more than 100% behind you. Totally serious, like not a, a, a twinkle in his eye. So I look over at my CEO, he's like turning red, purple, like, you know, wants to kill me. Inside, I really want to cry, because like it's a you know embarrassing situation. Um, but I went the other way, and I decided, not consciously, obviously, but to go the sarcasm route, the funny route. So I said, "You know, Jay, I'm really sorry. English is not my first language. And when I was learning English, everyone told me Americans love cliches. So how about we make a deal? I will never again say more than 100 percent for anything if you invest in the company. And he started laughing and everyone started laughing and, um, you know, we kept going and then we're uh, on our way back to our little rented space and I get a call and it's this woman, uh, Cheryl, who's Jay's assistant, who then became my assistant and a very dear friend who says, Jay wants to talk to you. And I'm like, doesn't he want to talk to the CEO? She's like, no, he wants to talk to you. And he gets on the phone and says, I want you to come and work for me because it's been a really long time since someone stood up to me. And it's been a really long time since someone was just like, I don't know the word he used. I, I have to be honest, I don't remember, but someone was just like their real self in front of me. So I want you to come and work for me. To which I replied, uh, thanks so much, but I don't really have any interest in venture capital. And I kind of think you have an attitude problem. Goodbye. And I hung up on him. Uh, a year later, our startup ran out of money because there were still like three ebooks in the world and I needed a job. Um, Avi, my current husband, my Boyfriend at the time, we're living in New York City. You know, we had college loans. I needed a job. So I called Jay Goldberg and I said, Jay, this is Natalie, the 150% woman. Can I have my job? He said, Yes, the office has been waiting. I knew you'd come back. And that's how I became a managing director at a venture capital firm.
0: It's so helpful to hear because you, I I think leadership, I think some people develop leadership skills and people who are naturally leaders continue to evolve. I think it's obvious that you're, you fall into the natural camp who continues to evolve. Um, And so it's, I think it's really helpful to hear some of those perspectives. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, because you have a daughter now who is almost 15, which is not too far off from the age when you guys were in the process of immigration and going to, into refugee camps do you mind sharing a little bit about your experience? Like, most people don't know what it's like in a refugee camp or what that experience is like. Um, we hear news stories now; some are horrific, some are not. And do you mind sharing a little bit about what your actual experience, like, what was your experience like as an early teenager?
1: Yes, no, totally, and um, I'm so glad you bring up Mia. So. Yeah, we actually, um, you know, we're really close. I mean, she's a teenage. She's a a great, I'm really like, I'm proud of her humanity is what I tell her every day or as many times as I can remember. Um, But it's been a big theme we've been talking about. We're actually going back to Russia. I'm going back for the first time um, next month. It's 30 years this year that we left and I haven't been back. My parents have been back, but we're all going uh, with my husband, my daughter and my parents. Um, So it's, and we've been talking about this a lot with her that i like i said mia this year these two years our lives met i met you in america like we became the same age and you know it's i'm so grateful you asked cuz this is why i always start there even my keynotes right so i run happier i teach ha- skills of emotional health my keynotes are about you know we have a whole happier at work program i do workshop with leaders women and I always start by sharing a little bit of my story back when I became an immigrant, because I talk about being a refugee. It's not an event. It's a life experience. I am still a refugee. I'm still everything in my life is um, like, you know, there's um, this exercise psychologists do. It's called something like if you had to pick a word, if you were to describe yourself like a series of nouns, what would be the first noun? for me, refugee comes before woman, before mom, before daughter, before entrepreneur, before leader, before everything. It is the core of my identity. And so, you know, the the. I I guess the thing is, and this is why I kind of in a circular way was answering your question, like, it's crazy that right now what I do is I teach happiness as a skill and I go into companies and I do this and my book is called Happier Now, because it was such um, the opposite experience, right? And you know, I think at 13, you don't want to move across the street. Um, like familiarity is really important. But for me, you know, so uh, I grew up my whole life, I knew where we were trying to leave Jews were persecuted in Russia. And, but that was quite different from actually, like, um, we were allowed to bring six suitcases, um, two per person was the regulation. So my big stress at the time was that my parents said, like, I could not bring my stuffed animal that I grew up with. It's a monkey. His name was Jeka. You know, we all have that. It didn't fit because we needed to bring, we didn't know how long we'd be in the refugee settlement. So we had to bring like clothes for winter and summer. We left August uh, May 21st, just for context. You know, I uh, couldn't bring, like I kept a diary. And you weren't allowed to bring reading material unless the Russian customs read it. And my parents said we didn't have enough time. So, like, nobody will ever know the big Soviet secret of who my crush was in second grade. That's, you know, and so, but those were just hints. Like, I didn't quite get it. And then, you know, I... Um, like one of the most seminal moments, I guess, that describes the experience. So first, we lived in a refugee settlement in Vienna, in Austria, um, because when we left Russia, we had to give up our citizenship, um, which was – to be a Jew was always like secondary. You were always considered second rate citizen, but anyway, they made you give it up. And so we were like nomads. So the first refugee settlement the Americans had set up was in Vienna. And um, my dad, who is my hero and an incredible, brilliant PhD scientist, and just, you know, this great mind, he got a job unloading like fruit market crates, like for a few dollars, just to get some extra money for food. Because we got a monthly stipend from the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which we had since paid back. But it was, I I know my parents talk about it it was basically like 90% of it went to cover the rent. So there's very little money left for food. So my dad took this gig like he would go at four in the morning to do some manual labor to get a little bit of money. And um, one day I remember he was coming back. It was like seven in the morning. He came in, he was all like dirty, disgusting. My mom, we shared this tiny little... Room in this apartment building. There's probably like a hundred Russian Jews stuffed in like a couple apartments that were all connected. And he, my dad came back and he said, "Oh my God, girls, let's go the uh, the opera house in Vienna. It's free today to visit, so let's go." And I said to him, "This is ridiculous because we have no money. We have no idea when we'll have a home, and you want to go and enjoy life and sightseeing and." My dad said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, you're absolutely right. Life really sucks right now, but we have a choice. We can either sit here and wallow in the suck, or we can take an opportunity to do something together and enjoy something that doesn't cost money and be together as a family. And I rejected this whole idea at the time so strongly. There's a photo of us from that day. I show it sometimes on stage. And um, at the opera house, my dad met this um, gentleman who ended up buying us ice cream afterwards, which like we could not afford anything like that. And everyone in the photo, it's what this gentleman is smiling. We just had ice cream, like what a gift. And my face, I looked so angry and upset because I could not permit myself to experience a moment of joy when life was so effed up like that became core to my experience like i felt i you had to hold the suffering you had to someone had to watch over all the suffering and my view was formulated right then that happiness means everything is okay and you feel great and everything was not okay and so i couldn't enjoy this little moment and i became this holder of suffering. That happiness is not about being positive all the time. It is not about everything being okay. It's about learning how to embrace all of the different emotions we have, including the difficult ones, and then practice things like gratitude and kindness so we can Find little moments of joy.
0: Did you feel safe in that experience? Because that's... I did. I did.
1: We did feel safe. You know, there's um, there hasn't been enough books written about it, but 450,000 Russian Jews came in those two years, 89 and 90 through those refugee settlements. They were huge. Um, there's a lot of people there. So we did feel safe. You know, the second camp we went to was in Italy in this little town called La Dispoli. And it was, you know, there were... Tens of thousands of people like us there, the Americans had set up a school for Russian kids to go to, which of course I didn't, because who's going to go to school in the summer? And like, especially when you're a refugee, I went to English classes, um, because I wanted to improve my English. But we did. So physically, we felt safe, but um, we had no... We had none of what I actually think is the other really important safety. There was no psychological safety because it was 100% uncertainty, right? You know, I teach this now, like I teach a lot about uncertainty and change. Whenever the human brain faces uncertainty, we immediately feel fear, whether we recognize it or not. And lots of things happen. Like our brain loves to make up really bad stories um, because our brain loves stories. Um, uh, A lot of other things happen. And so we were in perpetual fear. It was almost like an indulgence we couldn't afford to talk about difficult things. You just persevered, like you were grinning and gritting it. You just fought through it. I learned that, okay, when you have difficult feelings, you're just supposed to somehow outrun them or suppress them. I didn't want to burden people that I loved with my difficult feelings. And I learned it then. I'm not saying my parents were trying to teach me this, but I learned it because they didn't talk about their feelings. And I carried that with me for a very long time until, you know, several years ago, I just couldn't. And lots of, and I got to a very dark place, but so we felt safe physically. We didn't, there was no psychological safety of any kind. And it was a really formative experience that I guess in a way, you know, my teacher, my spiritual teacher became my teacher, Janet, she's in the book. Shockingly, I never had a religious bone or spiritual bone in my body. She always says that I was meant to do the work that I do now because I found a way to break through and transcend something that I adopted so firmly as a life philosophy that now the only thing I can do is share it with others, which I do feel called.
0: We'll be right back after this message. Listen, sometimes the quickest self-care comes in the simple decisions we make every day. A kind relationship with yourself begins with the clothes you put on in the morning, and Beta Brand gets that looking good and feeling good is a huge game changer when it comes to a long day. Their dress pant yoga pants feature ultra comfy styles designed to impress, with amazing features like wrinkle-resistant four-way stretch Ponty knit fabric, and thoughtful details like faux zippers, front buttons, and belt loops. Beta Brand reminds women that they should never have to compromise when it comes to being comfortable and looking amazing. They have great pocket options to choose from, like a style with eight, yes, eight pockets, and a style with deep, invisible zipper hand pockets. For me, self-care includes choosing the pants that make me feel good and look good over the pants that simply don't. Self-care is reminding myself that I can put my comfort first and buy clothes that make me feel myself versatile, strong, and confident. So that's why I started wearing Beta Brands Dress Pant Yoga Pants. Visit betabrand.com slash 43% to get 20% off yours. That's B E T A B R A N D dot com slash four three P E R C E N T to get twenty percent off your dress pant yoga pants today. So obviously, you were you guys were in an incredibly difficult situation. And, and you came through that and had all this success. And, you know, your professional life and your family's life. And, and now you have what, what looks like a very stable existence. When did you start to feel psychologically safe? Like what were the sort of the things that needed to line up maybe in hindsight that let you feel that way?
1: To be really honest with you, I don't think I ever did feel psychologically safe um, until uh, a few years ago, as you know, as I share in the book, I, I don't know what to call it. I had a total breakdown or I don't know the words for it, but I just stopped being able to hold all these feelings that I've been collecting for 25 years. I stopped being able to outrun them through achievements. I stopped being able to suppress them. They all came out and it was the scariest, scariest, scariest time in my life. I thought everything was over. I'm not kidding. And I know you and I have talked about this. I thought my life was over. I thought my marriage was over, my company, everything, because I just, I didn't know what to do with all of this. And so I actually don't think I had any psychological safety until the moment where. I think what I say in my book is, for the first time in my life, I actually put down this weight that I had been carrying and re- realized that there's no way around it. I had to go through it. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And uh, but what I say about it now is, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I would wish it on my best friend because it, it fundamentally changed everything. And I think what you're the gift of talking to you today is me realizing that it's only in the past few years that I have begun to feel safe. And I'm not saying like that I am completely, that now I am fearless. I don't believe in being fearless. Um, Or that I'm I'm definitely, that all the difficult things that are happening in my life or will happen are easy, but I, I have a foundation. I have these anchors. I know how to work through things. So I think I've only felt safe, psychologically safe for the past few years because I spent my entire life being afraid to feel bad things.
0: I'm so excited actually that you just shared that because I think it's something that a lot of us, even though I haven't obviously had a refugee experience, there's a lot in the United States of people, like I come from a family of immigrants, right? Like who um, were kind of raised with these topics like to be, to say things, you know, if someone compliments you on an outfit to say, oh, this old thing, I only spent $5 on it. I got almost like a shame around talking about like just acknowledging that you have something nice like there's always there's always kind of a slant of well I got this as a good deal or um and so taking that back to you know that it, some of that might stem from a fear of not having enough or a fear of running out it's just very interesting mm-hmm. because there there is something when you when you bring the expensive bag people assume you're doing better than you are and and then they are more confident in sharing their their money with you right like so it is it's very I haven't noodled on it a lot, but it was really interesting to hear you describe that.
1: Well, I think, you know, um, what you just articulated, I think it's a really important point um, to highlight that, you know, we all have fears. They're all different. Sometimes they're the same. Um, But I think that at the core, our fear is just that we are not enough. And that, I think, you know, I write about this in my book a lot is that. All of my achievements and successes, proud as I am of all of them, I was trying to earn my own permission to feel happy because I I just never felt like I had done enough or that I was enough. And even, you know, my teachers helped me see this, like even with my um, family. Um, And this is actually like, I don't think I've ever said this in an interview. I've talked to them about it, but I would always like over effort with them because I... In a way, like I felt I needed to earn the love, you know. So, like I, I've had a crazy, intense career for many years, but I still cook most nights and like elaborate meals and weekends. And that I've like always had this guilt of I'm not a good enough daughter. I'm not doing enough. Like I had this huge, like I still carry this guilt. I just want to be honest about it. That I left a very lucrative career um, to do this because if I stayed in that career, I'd have millions of dollars, literally, and I could. Um, pay for my, and for my parents to stop working and send them around the world. Like from want, not, they would never let me do it and they don't expect this. But like my teacher said to me, well, how does that make you a better daughter? Like true love is for your being, not your doing. You know, my teacher said to me a couple of years ago, Natalie, you're a being not a doing. And it took me years to internalize this. And I started saying it to Mia, my daughter, it was around her 14th birthday, I don't know how this came up, but I was like, what's something that I said to you that you feel like really impacted you? And she said, Oh, that's easy. You're a being not a doing. And for me, like that is my raison d'etre. That's my reason to do my own internal work with all the stuff we're talking about is so that I can be my best self for her and be a role model. Because as you know, our kids just pick up everything we do, not what we say, but what we do. And To know that, like, my having worked through that, and I'm not saying like fully, like, I still over effort. I still like the joke in my family. I went away last weekend with my best friend. It was her big birthday, my 30 years in America. And as I was leaving, I was like, oh, I didn't make you guys dinner for Saturday. And they were like, oh my God, we're going to survive. You know, it's this joke. And I was like, and then Avi, my husband, cooked. He doesn't really, he cleans and does a ton of other stuff, but he doesn't usually cook. And my daughter, they sent me a photo of what he cooked. And I was like, oh, my God, so what do you guys need me for? And Mia replied, you're being. And it was all in jest, but actually there was all that depth to it because I actually, there's a part of me that's like, oh, my God, if I'm not cooking, am I really like a great mom or wife? Like for real, Claudia. And so I have to work through that. And they know that.
0: For me, it's not the cooking thing if it was i i don't i'd be off the radar in terms of failing cuz i'm such a takeout kind of person but i do i over i have a tendency to overwork because for for some of the reasons you just described i will i will feel like if i'm still for too long that i'm not providing value yeah i get it so that's why I'm doing so many different things, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating though to hear her be able to articulate that at this age that she's at. And you know, you you talked about how sometimes you wish or regret that you weren't in that more lucrative field that you could be providing for your parents at this stage of life. But would you ever want your daughter? I mean, I can't imagine you're putting that expectation on your daughter, the one that you put on yourself. Never.
1: And my parents don't have this expectation myself. In fact, like I've uttered this like a couple of times to them and you should see my dad, he goes ballistic. He's like, you are insane as if I would ever take your money. Like you're like, there's no expectation of this. It's a self-created, you know. It's a desire. Like they've gone through hell, and I want to, you know, make their life brighter. Um, but it's zero expectation from them. Like I just want to be clear about that. It's entirely of my own creation, you know. And this is, I think, the really hard thing in parenting is, you know, to because so many of the expectations are created without explicit articulation
0: you know what i mean for sure yeah absolutely and i know what i want for my kids in terms of their their happiness and their own fulfillment and their own sense of purpose and so i hope i'm modeling correctly but you never know they see me doing a day trip to chicago so they might think you know there's an expectation around being crazy with your job i don't know
1: a- absolutely and you know the overworking stuff right i mean I work a ton too. And I, I'm a little more balanced now, I think with work and myself and other things, but I work non a ton. And, but I used to, you know, before my burnout, I really um, was overworking in a crazy way. And I think that um, I'm not saying that that this is always a choice because I realize like there are people working 16 hour shifts in factories just to make ends meet. Like I want to be like, it's not always a choice, but for you and me for, you know, the creative class, right? Or for whatever, like when was the last time you read an article in the New York Times that was like, oh my God, this is an incredible leader. He sleeps eight hours a night and he takes weekends off and he practices kindness. Like this is not what we read articles about, right? The articles are about Martha Mayer who slept three hours a day and put the crib in her office or Elon Musk who like has five kids, five businesses and is very like happy talking that he can do email while being with his kids. That is what we idealize, and that's the example we're given: the hustle, 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 blah, blah, blah. It is a choice we make, but it's a conditioned choice because we don't feel like we're enough or how we're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be, unless we're overworking. So we're over-efforting there. We're over because we're not enough. We're over-efforting with our families because we feel we're not enough. Which is why I say I think the underlying fear for most of us is that we are not enough; that our being is not enough. That we have to do all these things and over effort so that we can feel enough to ourselves and people around us. And I'm not saying like everyone drop everything, just stand still, look at each other and that's love. Like I'm not saying that. But there's definitely for me one of the huge, it's, incredible, it's incredibly tangible for me that I know if I'm doing something from a place of love or a place of fear. It is very clear. It's actually a workshop I teach and I didn't come up with the idea of of fear versus love. It's, you know, like there's a lot of other like spiritual authors write about it. I just make it very concrete. Um, And so for me, it's very clear. Am I doing this from a place of love or am I doing it from a place of fear? And Claudia, the incredible thing Whatever we all believe in, energy, universe, I don't know, really whatever, right? I I do believe that we are all connected with it with an energy, right? There's a common consciousness. Um, that's my extent of belief. But I can tell you every single time I do something from a place of fear, and I want to make that concrete. So let's say um, uh, let's make it super like pick the tiniest sliver. When I post something on Instagram and I do it from um a place of like Oh, and as I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, what if people don't like this post? I don't know if this is good enough. If I do it from that place, it never lands. If I write an email, right? Every week I write an email to about 100,000 people in a happier community. I know at the moment I hit send, Claudia, whether it's going to be get engagement or not, because when I am in a place of fear, my talks and, you know, it's one of the when people say that I look completely different on stage because I, I actually have never given a talk from a place of fear. I, pra- I have a whole practice I go through with some of the skills where I like get into the mental space. But my point is that um, I'm really committed to this. This is my sense of meaning. I'm doing this to share, to help someone. That's love, right? Those are other words for love. The place of fear, whatever that action is, whatever that outcome, creative output, whatever, Never works.
0: I love that because I think um, that actually is so practical, like something I can actually, I and anyone listening can actually take into practice because I know there's definitely been times where I'll be, you know, super diligent about sending something out. And sometimes it's just because I'm like, I'm on top of this and this is the right thing to do. And other times I'm actually reacting to a made up loop in my own head. I think that's actually incredibly helpful, practical advice about something that we tend to think is abstract. What advice, if you were your own daughter, what advice would you give to yourself as that 13-year-old Natalie?
1: This is so uh, timely, Um, and I'm going to... so Mia's birthday is on, uh, like, we always, in our family, we have this tradition, we always make something for each other. And it actually came from how I grew up, because in Russia, there was never money. Um, my parents couldn't buy me things most of the time. Mm-hmm. So like, my dad is an incredible poet, he would write me something, my mom would like make, bake me my favorite thing. So we always make something for each other, cards or whatever, like there's always. So this year, I actually did this yesterday. Um Somehow 15, turning 15, finishing ninth grade. I don't know why, Claudia. It feels really big to me. I don't know. Like it's not a traditional, you know, milestone, right? Like graduating high school, whatever. So anyway, I was really moved to um, make her something. So um, I made her a poster Um, which is getting made now into a canvas print with my art in the background. And um, it's called Life Reminders from Your Mama, a.k.a. Your Biggest Fan. And there's 10 life reminders. And these are all things that I really wish I guess I'd heard her age. And so I'm not going to read all 10, I promise. So the first one is be kind to yourself. Beating yourself up just wastes energy. Treat yourself with compassion and use that energy to do better. Give your best effort. Your job is to give your best effort to anything you do. Leave the job of judging the outcome of your efforts to someone else. Forget perfection. You'll never reach it. It doesn't exist. Aim to be better than you were before. Share your struggles. Your struggles don't make you weak. They make you courageously human. And they give people who love you the gift of being able to help and share their own. And the last thing that says at the bottom of the page is you're a being, not a doing. Hmm. Oh my gosh, I love that. It was a really powerful exercise because I approached this like, what are the things that I wish
0: I'd heard at 15? It's so valuable and helpful. So thank you for sharing it today.
1: Thank you for letting me. I appreciate the space.
0: That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, Cynthia Pimentel, and the whole team at Wonder Media Network. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website at the43percent.com. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week.